0: Welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast, your monthly source for conversations and curated content to improve your law practice with your host, Rocky Deer.
1: Hi, and welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast. I have a confession to make. I love doing this podcast. I do. I really do. It's one of the highlights of my work. I love that we talk every month about how to improve our law practices, how to improve the legal system, and what we can learn from some of our legal legends. But this month is a little different. We're going to talk about saving lives, either your own or someone else's. September is National Suicide Prevention Month, and we here at the State Bar of Texas know just how important this topic is. For Terry Bentley Hill, this topic is personal. She lost her first husband, and nine years later, their 14-year-old daughter, both to suicide. Out of that personal tragedy, Terry, who practices criminal law in Dallas, has made it her quest to understand and teach about mental health. Her work has earned her a presidential citation by the State Bar of Texas for her work with attorneys struggling with mental health and substance use disorders. Mental health issues hit our profession more than most others, and too many of us suffer in silence or are unaware of the warning signs of someone who needs help. So, what can each of us do to help? Chris Ritter might have some ideas. He is the director of TLAP, the Texas Lawyers Assistance Program. He's not only an attorney who has practiced in big and small offices, he also holds a master's degree in clinical mental health counseling. Chris has also authored an article in the September 2019 edition of the Texas Bar Journal. His article is titled Technology and Mental Health. If you didn't think there was a connection between those topics, you need to pick up a copy and read what Chris has to say. We're fortunate to have both Chris and Terry with us today. Chris and Terry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you both for being here.
2: Thank you for having us. I'm so glad we can talk about this topic. It's so important.
1: Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Now, Terry, let's, let's start with you. It, it sounds, like, sounds like you've got quite a story to tell us. What, If you don't mind, what, what happened all those many years ago?
2: You're right. It is a very sad and uh, difficult subject uh, for a lot of people to hear. Uh, I've lived with it now for 25 years, and uh, basically what I am is I am a survivor of suicide with a capital S. I am one of those uh, who have been left behind, and Hmm. two of my family members have taken their lives, as, as you mentioned, And what started my passion and my drive to participate in in attorney wellness is my first husband was the elected district attorney in Amarillo, Texas. And he was charismatic. He was smart. He was great in the courtroom. He had everything going for him. Uh, He had been state representative uh, in that district for two terms and was well-known and well-respected. I I started dating him after covering the courthouse and the police department as a reporter for the CBS affiliate up in Amarillo and uh, just fell in love with him and um, was just swept off my feet by him. And the the thing that I didn't know was when we married – Danny was, was all of those wonderful things, but he was also struggling with alcoholism. And because my own experience with alcohol was limited to the University of Texas because we didn't socially uh, have social drinking in my home when I grew up, everybody drank and got drunk. And so that was my normal. So when we dated and we went out and I would stop drinking and he wouldn't and he got drunk, that was not a red flag for me. So what that led to is 11 years of keeping a secret because he was an elected official and we were afraid, and I say we because it is a family disease, we were afraid that if if either one of us reached out for help, it would affect his career. And we lived in the shadows of shame. And so It is well known that when you suffer from a substance use disorder or oftentimes an untreated mental health disorder, it can lead, uh, it can be fatal. And in the case of my husband, after 11 years, it took a toll on our marriage. I had filed for divorce and he was an elected official who had started drinking uh, at work and after work and had had a car accident. And so there was a removal suit that had been filed against him. And so he was about to lose the thing that was also the most important, and that was his job and his identity and his ability to serve others. And he also, again, was struggling with depression and the alcoholism. So the triggering event basically was that he was about to lose his job and he was losing his marriage, and on Palm Sunday in 1995, he walked into our bedroom and he took his life and our four daughters. In front of you? Yes. Did he do that in front of
1: you? Oh my goodness. Okay.
2: Yes. And while my, my four daughters were sleeping, I had just put them down to sleep that night when he walked in. And so when he died, part of me died with him. And I was not a lawyer at the time. I immediately became a single mom. And I was a single mom for 20, had been a single mom basically for seven, eight years. And then uh, when I remarried a lawyer, he had said, Terry, you've always wanted to go to law school. Why don't you go to law school? So that is my story of becoming an attorney. But a side note and a very tragic side note is I had enrolled at the age of 46 years old. So I had a lot of insecurities about whether or not I could do this law school business to begin with. Did I have the concentration? Did I have what it takes? Et cetera. All those self-doubt questions, but I was going to just try to make it work. Well, two weeks into my First semester, I got a phone call as I'm reading legal research and writing that my 14-year-old daughter, my youngest daughter, had taken her life. And so I withdrew from law school that year. And nine months later, the law school called me and said, are you going to come back? If you're not, we're going to fill your spot And I went to my therapist because that's one of the things I had to do after uh, my first husband died is I had to get into therapy. I I had to treat um, all of my depression as a result. And so uh, I said to her, I said, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can go to law school. And she said, I'm going to tell you something, Terry. I usually don't tell my patients what to do. I let them figure that out for themselves. But I'm going to tell you right now you're going to go to law school and you're going to take that one semester at a time. And when you walk across that stage in three years and collect that diploma, you'll know there is nothing you can't do. And that is exactly what I did. And she was exactly right. And when I passed the bar in 2009, at the age of 50, one of the very first phone calls I made was to TLAP, because I was going to become a TLAP volunteer, because somewhere in my gut, I thought if Danny had had that peer support that... He could relate to lawyers that who had struggled just like him. If he had had that support, maybe things would have been different.
1: Now, now Terry, let, let me ask you. Going back over your over this this saga that you've shared with us, and first of all, thank you for enlightening us about your story. But as as we go back over this, now it sounds like with Danny, with your with your ex husband, you had you had at least some warning signs that there were problems. At some point, you realized alcohol was an issue. What about with your daughter? Did you see any indications that maybe she was suffering from depression or there was something going on? Or was that a surprise?
2: No, it was not a surprise because one thing that I have learned through this healing process is that people with depression speak uh, the language of depression. There is a language that they speak. They speak in terms of uh, black and white, all or nothing terms i didn 't speak the language of depression when I was married to my husband. He gave me all mm. the information I needed. He walked around with a with a, uh, suicide in his toolbox and eventually pulled it out and used it. but i didn't understand what he was saying because i didn't understand the language of depression.
1: Can you give us examples what are what are what are some language that people use
2: a specific instance, was very early on in our relationship. He was trying a capital murder case. And the shooter was a 17-year-old uh, young man who shot a police officer, so it was a capital murder. And he was going for the death penalty. And instead of getting the death penalty, the shooter uh, was sentenced to life in prison. Okay. My husband was so distraught over that, he felt he had left every he let everyone down. And he just could not get over that, and one of the things he said to me is, "I've let everyone down, I might as well just kill myself." Well, I looked at him like, what that made no sense to me. Why would you kill yourself just because that verdict was that you didn't get the the outcome that you we're hoping that you would get. See, my mind didn't go there because I wasn't speaking the language of depression. I didn't understand that. So that was uh, a particular instance, but there were other signals and signs all through our marriage that I missed because I didn't, I didn't seek my own help. One time I told him I'm going to have to go get some help. And he said, well, then you might as well uh, file for divorce because the minute you get, you seek the help, people are going to know I have a problem and it will ruin me. And so it stopped me dead in my tracks. And so we, our secrets kept us sick, and to the point where it it, it, it caused his death. Our secrets caused his death. And so I, um, I, with my girls, especially because there's a predisposition to uh, to addictions, to substance use disorders, to mental health issues, and just the trauma that we've all been through, as you can imagine, in our home. I watched my girls very, very closely. And I'm going to tell you that all four of them suffered from depression. All of them have struggled with uh, a variety of mental health issues. And so, yes, I knew my daughter was struggling, and we were treating it. But, again... Even at that time, this has been 15 years ago, almost exactly 15 years ago, I still wasn't proficient at the language of depression because these are the things that she said to me in the eighth grade. I don't have any friends. Nobody likes me. No one sits with me in the cafeteria. And I knew that wasn't true because I knew all of the kids who invited her over to spend the night. I knew how much they liked her. I, I, and, and just to prove her wrong – I went and volunteered in the in the cafeteria to 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 see for myself whether or not she was sitting by herself in that cafeteria and of course she wasn't but you know what I've learned is it didn't matter what I thought it was what she thought and so it was her reality that I I missed and it was that's why the suicide rate for children from the ages of 10 to 25 are off the chart. It's a second leading cause of death. They go to a place that if we do not pick up on that, then it can lead to their death as well. And I need to say this before we go on. This is very important, and I've learned this. When a parent dies by suicide, the odds of a child following in that parent's footsteps dramatically increases it's almost as if when that person dies, they give a present to their child, and in that, in that present, there is a note that that parent wrote, and it said, I am now giving you permission to take your life because a child who suffers from depression now has an option to that pain. And oftentimes you'll hear that suicide runs in families. Well, that is one of the reasons why is because there is an option now that has been put on the table that oftentimes a child may not may not even think about, except for that parent led the way.
1: Now, now, Chris, this Terry's story is is it, I know I can't speak for for everybody listening in, but it's kind of shaking me to my core. This is this is some pretty. Some, some pretty heavy and momentous information and, and just illustrations that we're getting from all this. In your, in your September 2019 Texas Bar Journal article where you talk about technology and mental health, you start off with some pretty startling statistics about the legal profession. Can you tell us a little bit about that? It sounds like, sounds like lawyers have, have a pretty serious mental health problem as a group. Can you talk to us about that?
3: Sure, and I'd really like to set this up by letting people know, attorneys know, law students know that these problems are not uncommon. These struggles are very common. I used to think when I was in law school, you know, poor me, uh, uh, but, but at least I'm not in medical school. The legal profession is very unique. We're handling everybody's biggest problem. All of our clients, if we have 50 cases, we've got 50 people their biggest problem in life on our shoulders, and then we're also trying to manage our mental health. We're in the night in the legal profession. We're in the 96 percentile for anxiety. We don't get training in law school. We're starting to, but we haven't historically gotten training in law school about how to manage. The anxiety of being an attorney from a psychological point of view, most of us spend uh, our early career trying to figure out how to do this. And some of us, I'm I'm one person, found a pretty good solution, which was drinking. that worked for me for a little while. And all of a sudden, it was causing more anxiety. When my, I guess my tolerance got to a certain ridiculous level, that I was having to drink so much to feel relief. But we self-medicate with alcohol, or sometimes other other habits or drugs. But I just want to say this: you know, a lot of attorneys. How many admit that they have problems? Very, very few want to because it's a competitive world. Forty-six percent of thirteen thousand attorneys admitted that they've struggled with depression we know that the the actual number certainly got to be higher than that mm-hmm. and so to me this this statistic alone is mind blowing because it's saying most attorneys have no healthy way to manage stress and i didn't know this until really i started getting into a master's program for for uh clinical mental health work Um, if you stay stressed out chronically, you're going to have depression. Most of us also have struggled at times with depression. We're we're really extreme workers. That's how we got to law school. But I think the thing that Terry, by her sharing this story, she's sharing a story that many of us uh, in the legal profession have experienced in our families or in our own lives. And I I can tell you, um, it's the third leading cause in one study for attorneys suicide is the third leading cause of death in a study i found we're number one in hundred and five professions for incidents of depression and i believe that it's rooted in a, a real need maybe for some cultural change but a need for us to learn how to manage this how to get help and how how to help each other and And this topic today is very personal to me, in 2007, I got a divorce, also lost. I was raised by my grandmother, and, and she unexpectedly passed away. I was burned out. I heard about another attorney that I had a case with that had driven off the road and, and died by suicide, and I thought that day that I found out, he's lucky. I also was fortunate enough to have people around me noticing that I wasn't myself noticing that I was sad, and I visibly showed people apparently that I wasn't doing well and I had several people ask me how I was doing, and I told each of them i'm fine, don't need any help." I went to secretly a therapist uh parked down the street, was afraid for people to see uh my car I was in a smaller I was in Lubbock, Texas, and I um went to a therapist I found in the phone book that was a child therapist. I found that out at the first um, hour that I wasted because I didn't go to someone that understood that was appropriate for what I needed. Although getting to any therapist is going to help because that person connected me to a person that was suited. But I wanted to start by saying attorneys have a unique, a very unique life. We have very limited time for self-care. Um I think the article you mentioned i uh talking about you know we're we're shackled to our computers and our cell phones and and all of this thing, having the ability well, on. To, oh yeah, and having the ability to develop some boundaries having the the knowledge to do to do self care and I would like us to spend if we could and Terry, please jump in and help me um, talk about what we can do to help each other to diminish uh, and to 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 really uh, address the the rate of suicide the number of suicides that happen in in the legal world and i wanted to share one study and then we could talk about other in the air force which the military has tremendous tremendous problem with suicides they have they implemented a universal training which is is essentially the ask training and reduce the rates of suicide by 21%. And to me, the key to this, the key to our making improvement in this is Terry, TLAP, getting out there and and affecting people to know what to look for and to know what to do if they see something that worries
1: them. So actually, I did want to talk about those two things, Chris, because it sounds like those are going to be the two key takeaways for anybody listening to this. How to identify a problem in someone else or themselves. And then, you know, how do you broach that topic? So if you guys have ideas, I think we'd all like to hear them. So, you know, what's, uh, how do you tell the difference between somebody who's just experiencing normal work level stress versus someone who is really, really needing or possibly crying out for help? Can you guys guide us through those?
2: There are some telltale signs for sure. And what I have started emphasizing is that we have to stop minding our own business. In this country, we're very sensitive about people telling us what to do, asking us questions, and I'm saying we have to stop minding our own business. This is why. People who do have depression, they exhibit symptoms of, de- of depression. Oftentimes, the number one uh, symptom is isolation. And so when a person goes into their cave, they are separating themselves from others. They may not answer the phone. They may not open their mail. They lose interest in things that they used to to enjoy doing. They may be very – they may be volatile. They may be crying. They will show you signs. Your gut will tell you something is not right. That, that lawyer never used to go into his office and shut the door. Now that door is shut all the time, if he even comes to work. So there are signs. So then what Chris was alluding to, the ASK program, you ask the question, are you okay? I'm concerned. This is what I see, and not in a judgmental way, but in a caring way. And then if the question is answered, I am not okay, then you can ask the second question, are you thinking of hurting yourself or are you thinking of going away? Is, Is life too hard? And if the answer is yes, then the third question is, do you have a plan? Ask the question. Don't be afraid to. Oftentimes, that is one of the hardest things for people to get their mind wrap their mind around is asking those questions. Suicidal pressure can be can can be looked at like a balloon filling up with helium. It gets it expands as the pressure increases. And oftentimes, what we need to do is release that pressure. And by asking those questions, oftentimes that releases the pressure. And we can get the person who is suicidal to pause and not take that tool out of their toolbox.
3: I really think it's important because I have, because of my work at T-Lab, asked this question many, many Many dozens of times, virtually anyone that contacts us, that we have a discussion about how things are, about what's going on in their life, often leads, most often leads to me talking about this. I was terrified to ask people in in fear when I started that it would plant the seed or plant the idea that their life is terrible if I ask those questions. And I want you to know the research out there is very clear that asking these kinds of questions does does not plant the seed, get, does not give them the idea. And almost all of the time that I ask this question, there's a great relief on the caller or the person I'm talking to that I I normalize it before I ask it, just because it is very common. I say many attorneys I know have thought about this? Have you thought about suicide? Are you considering hurting yourself? Those questions have be, have made so many people I've talked to, like just like was mentioned by Terry just now, the balloon deflates a little bit. They feel relief and it opens the door where we can just listen and then follow up with what's needed in response. Uh, many have said, no, I haven't gotten to that point. I've thought about it in passing, but so often they're like, yes, I have. I think about it, you know, frequently. Then we talk about is there a plan and so forth. But I just wanted to add to what Terry shared. Asking is a good thing, and it's very hard to do when you don't do it a lot. At TLAP, we would be happy to talk to anybody about how to go about that or the suicide prevention uh, line is available at all times.
1: Now, but let's go to the other possibility. So, you know, I appreciated Terry going through the questions to ask. And if they say yes, then this, if yes, you know, then this, but what happens if they say no, you go to somebody and say, are you okay? And they say, yeah, I'm fine. You know, do you need any help? And they say, no. And like Terry said, in your gut, you know, something's wrong or you feel something's wrong, but they just don't want to open up. What do you do then?
2: Well, I can tell you I've had that situation occur, and one of the things you can do and is, and is available to lawyers, to any lawyer or support staff or anyone, is then you can make a phone call to T-LAP, and you can say, hey, look, I'm really concerned about this lawyer. I asked the questions, and the answer was no. My gut is telling me something is going on. I want you all to know because then you, you all may be able to help and so that is what I have done before. and then um, chris and and the staff at TLAP, then they can get on that and call in also their volunteers who can ask that question again as well.
3: And likewise, in addition, being when we have close colleagues and friends that we know well and know something's wrong, and this is this is a wise thing before we have this conversation to have resources that we're prepared to give that person if we're worried about that person. So sometimes before we have the conversation, if we're worried about them, we want to already have a mental health professional that we might be able to connect them to. But if they say, no, I'm fine, and they clearly are not, we encourage, yes, TLAP can help. Uh, Sometimes people refuse help, but we can also, as friends, we can also be supportive and uh Tell and normalize what they're going through. Tell them about resources. We have support groups around. We also can plant the seed of letting them have some information, so they may do some self-assessment, which is, um, you know, to to give them hope. And that was one of the big symptoms that um, I wanted to, to to mention because we know what this means: hopelessness. If we see hopelessness in the people we love, there's something. To notice about that. And it's really the goal to, to help people, to give them hope, to give them the resources. That's our goal. But oftentimes when they say no, sometimes if we can just encourage them to share what's going on in their life and to be able to listen. Listening is a really tough thing for lawyers to do. Uh, we're so busy often directing things but to listen and let people vent is a huge thing.
2: Yeah, you know, I think what's really effective and which is is so important people respond to you when you tell them your story. That is why I'm so public with my story and my my journey of recovery because when i tell my story and they go okay she knows what i'm talking about she's been there she's in depression remission herself she has been to therapy, she's been to the peer support group, she's done the medication deal, she's been through hell and back, then they are more likely to open up and feel the courage or the encouragement to get help themselves. So we have to tell our stories. All of us have a story, and it's very important to help those who are struggling. And by, you can help by just telling your story.
1: Now, what if you don't have experience with this? You know, if you've if you've never been to therapy, if unbeknownst to you, you've you've you don't you don't have any kind of you know depression or anything like that, or at least you don't think you do. You don't have a story to tell. So, what do people in that situation do?
3: With a person that they notice that they work with, the attorney or loved one that they notice something wrong, being able to ask the question, "Are you okay?" Being able to listen being able to connect uh, that person to some resources, offer some resources. And if a person is in those shoes, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline can be a great help. Um, TLAP, we're happy to walk people through some strategies to, to try to get help to the ones they love. It is almost unbelievable how easy this process can be if we engage the person in a loving way and ask a couple of questions and listen because people that are having suicidal ideation are uncomfortable with what's going on and they want to they want change to happen it's it's a condition of the mind it's not and i hear so many things said especially on social media that are judgmental about it it's an illness of the mind the mind is overwhelmed with the chemistry in the mind gets overwhelmed and it's a perspective problem that they're out of control of and there's a way to get them help but I do think anybody that doesn't feel comfortable should use these resources. 800-273-TALK is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. 800 343 three T-LAP is our line and we're happy to give some some help and there are some things and Terry please share some things not to do.
2: Well, to piggyback on what Chris said, I shared my story uh in Corpus Christi and I got an email from a person in the audience and the email w- made everything that I do worth it because this woman said, I heard you talk about asking those questions and I think because I asked those questions of my fourteen year old it saved her life. She said, "I asked her the question are you are you okay?" The answer was "No. Are you thinking of hurting yourself?" Yes, do you have a plan? Silence." She said it was the loudest, most deafening silence she's ever heard, and so they were able to get her the help. So those questions are are very important the The things that you don't want to do is you don't want to say just get over it. Everybody goes through what you're going through. Those questions invalidate the person's feelings. And what they need is they need someone to understand the incredible pain they're in. People don't die because because everything's okay. They're in incredible amount of pain. And so to validate that pain is very helpful to the person who is suffering and also can give them hope. There is always hope. Those that's the message that you give, but you don't minimize what's going on with a person ever. Don't you agree, Chris? Absolutely.
3: And trying to correct their feelings is a mistake. Empathizing, understanding that what appears hopeless is very painful. Instead of, which lawyers are really good at, arguing and saying, oh, well, you really don't have as bad of problems as this person over here, or saying, but think about your family and all of the people, because from their perspective, and I've been there, it would be a gift to others, because I am a complete burden on the world when I'm in that mindset, and I'm also in severe... Agony of trying to get peace, and I can't and that's why we have to be listeners and and all their feelings are valid, even if they're mistaken thoughts and that's one of the things that lawyers often don't get across and it's it's hard to it, my rational mind can make mistakes, but the feelings are real, and that's what can cause. Um, people to take steps like that. And I just, I really, I can't say enough about not being judgmental, validating, validating, because it is real what they're feeling.
1: Now, Chris, if if, if there is a, a lawyer who needs to reach out to TLAP, it's my understanding that any conversations they have with TLAP are confidential. Is that correct?
3: Absolutely. And just let me say it this way. People can call us. We've had judges call us, People can call us anonymously. We just want to help. We can be, we've been through a lot in our lives. We can share our stories, but we can connect them to really good professionals in their community. We can connect them to people, volunteers like Terry that have been through it. We can connect people to support groups. We can connect people to resources for funding to get therapy or other treatment needed. And we just want to help. And, and we have over a thousand volunteers statewide that all have something to offer to help someone out, to to be a mentor, to be a partner. And uh, TLAP is a great resource. You can call us anonymously, 1-800-343-TLAP.
1: Okay, yeah. I was going to ask you for that number again. So you you're reading my mind. So I appreciate that, Chris. Well, this is a very important topic. You know, we could we could talk for days about it and probably just scratch the surface but that is unfortunately all the time we have for today i want to thank my guests chris ritter and terry bentley hill for joining us and of course i want to thank you for tuning in if you need help or know someone who might please reach out to tlap and don't hesitate if you like what you heard today please rate and review us in apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app until next time remember life's a journey folks I'm Rocky Deer, signing off.
0: If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit legaltalknetwork.com. Go to texasbar.com/podcasts, subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Find both the State Bar of Texas and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn, or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes.